My name's Jana and I'm a trainee psychological wellbeing practitioner. I read the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I found it really interesting about all the different stories um, and how people got to become a clinical psychologist. It just amazed me how many different routes there are to get there and there's no perfect way to become one. And this kind of filled me with confidence that no, I'm not doing it wrong and put less pressure on myself. So if you're feeling a bit uneasy about becoming a clinical psychologist, I definitely recommend this just to put um, yourself at ease and everything will, will be okay. But trust me, you will not put the book down once you start. Coming up in today's episode, we are looking at something called cancel culture. That is the fear of speaking out, speaking truly in whatever situation you find yourself in for fear of what the repercussions would be. This is such an important episode and it crops up personally, professionally and in all kinds of dynamics. I am joined by a return guest, Dr. Deborah Kingston, and she is as compassionate and thoughtful and wonderfully inspiring as ever. Hope you find it so useful. If you're looking to become a psychologist Then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. Now, this episode is going to be available from Christmas Day 2023. And so there will be the occasional reference to the word Christmas. But this is an episode which is good for all year round. So it won't be advertised as a Christmas episode, but it's such an important episode and it runs through the veins of so much of what we do in our roles in mental health, but also as we might be trying to, you know, be the voice of reason in situations um, or having perhaps very different viewpoints on a variety of topics that actually sometimes it can feel like it's our duty to kind of balance or address um, but that can lead to you know potential conflict fallouts and that's why I wanted to invite our guest back today who we met previously on the podcast talking about trauma and ADHD and dyslexia and it's Dr Deborah Kingston so I hope you'll find this episode really useful I will look forward to catching up with you on the other side just want to welcome back to the podcast Dr Deborah Kingston who we first saw in July 2022 where has the time gone welcome back Deborah I, I hadn't realized how long it's 18 months roughly. where's it gone yeah I blinked and missed it but I think it's because you are in my world constantly because well, you're just so so kind to me Deborah on socials you're always so supportive and 
you just I don't know you get what I do and why I do it and yeah your your support is so so valued and so appreciated so thank you you're welcome I think I think aspiring the aspiring the next load of psychologists is so important that we have we try and get the right type of people into our profession so the more you can get out there and the wider the reach I think that's only a good thing for for what we do in clinical psychology yeah thank you well it means a great deal so thank you so one of the things we were speaking about recently was kind of when as a psychologist or as an aspiring psychologist or as anyone really that you kind of give your opinion or you kind of share your truth and then it leads to negative reactions from people and it can feel a bit like what they call cancel culture really and it can lead to a really complex array of emotions for us, can't it? Yeah, it really can. And if you think about some of the work that we might even think about doing in schools, that when we go in and we're trying to explain how there's a child with neurodiversity and, you know, and it's been 40 years since I was really in the midst of school and being told I was too thick to learn. But actually going back in and thinking there should be way more change, and way more issues and when you start to put these things on the floor and explain what neurodiversity is and try and give a child's perspective to get men with a defense sometimes that cancels out what we want to say and be passionate about what we're saying because it's just taken so wrongly because there's a multitude of professionals out there that are kind of not wanting or willing to listen so you know that's that's a huge one across our profession, whether it's be whether it's in CAMS, whether it's in private practice, whether it's just even sometimes what we say on social media platforms around um, neurodivergence and neurodiversity. So even just from a personal point of view, hearing some of the comments that come out about people like, you know, even myself when I was out recently at dinner, you know, and I was I thought I was saying something quite important and for the person involved and then she's like oh wow you talk way too much though don't you and I immediately froze and kind of thought I need to shut up I need to stop talking and then I think she saw my reaction she's like oh I didn't mean it bad didn't mean it bad but you know but you do talk too much though gosh that's strong that's strong isn't it yeah and it was I don't think she meant it bad but and then I was thinking well you know, I've heard all these different things you've said, so I couldn't have been talking that much that I've not heard. And I just get passionate about delivering good advice, whether I'm on duty or off duty, because I don't think you can really separate the psychologist in this. Because I absolutely you know knowledge, agree. You kind of want yeah. to impart it. Yeah. Especially and, you know, it's not being, you know, a dinner party psychologist to people that haven't consented, but I just often find myself in very deep conversations with people whether that's in work or whether that's in pleasure whether that's by the football sidelines watching my children it's just it's just a frequency I operate on you know I can do a little bit of light banter and you know chit chat but that's not really the the frequency that I resonate at best and normally and it's the same and I think recently as well if you think about what's going on in Palestine and Israel there's a lot of heated divide going on even in our country even between our, us as professions where I think the media bias and the lens that's coming out sometimes means that people just can't give an honest fear or feeling about what they're feeling and we have got clients that are coming into clinic saying this thing that's going on in the Middle East I'm really worried about it you know and not 
feeling like you can say anything you know when things big are going on or like you it's almost like especially on linkedin at the minute you know somebody was on there the other week saying about that if we're pro-palestine we must be um anti-jew and i was thinking actually where is the humanity in that you know we've had colleagues in the emdr world from palestine and israel that were once upon a time on shared training you know and these people were coming together to make a better trauma world in that region who've now again been segregated and i don't feel like we as clinicians should be able to come down on one side or the other without having a real view of humanity and what it must be like for both sides and understand that and formulate that from a perspective when we put emotion in because we want to take a one-sided approach i think that's where we get shut down in this cancel culture like so one of the responses I said, you know, was it's really a shame that women and children are being killed on both sides. And the person came back really blunt with me and just said, you've got it all wrong. You know, and I can't remember the word, the word vacates my mind, what it's called when you're anti-Jew, because there is a word for it. But I am so not, you know. Anti-Semitic. So Anti-Semitic, that's it. Do you want to do that a little bit again? <laughs> you know, my brain was, no, I'm happy. My brain was just totally dyslexic. <laughs> I couldn't, I had a brain fart. It just wouldn't come out. <laughs> but, you know, and I think it's the same in anything. You know, I, I grew up in a in a world where there was a lot of poverty and a lot of oppression in working class Scotland. And people take a, ge a generational view of what oppression is from the English, powering down the Scots. You know that's a very different world we're in now but some people still hold that view and it, it's really personal to them you know so we kind of do we don't just see this in the middle east or in you know fractious parts of the world you sometimes still see some of these conflicts and divides from generational histories and um, really kind of bearing down and who are we to kind of close down somebody's narrative without fully listening to it mm, you know? yeah really and good points hard. really good points with christmas coming up i think it's a really important point about how do we come together even look at families at christmas you know sometimes there's been some divide you know you might have grandparents and parents and children totally different generational stances and opinions how do all those voices get heard? Christmas can be one of the most stressful times for family, you know, or Thanksgiving that they've just had in the States where you want to come together to put what is perfect view on where everybody gets on and sings from the same song sheet. And a lot of time, a lot of opinions get closed down in families and it can feel really invalidating those experiences and those differences. And I, how do people manage that if we as psychologists aren't mirroring it even in sometimes in some of the work that we're doing out on social media yeah yeah really important and it's so easy to forget that not everybody exists in a in an ecosystem in their family or you know even in their wider family system that feels that they are seen as important valid special you know that they have a voice that's worth hearing um you know even I know I was listening to something this morning on the radio um, of someone who um, is a gay man and um, had spoken about in the past, you know, it had been a really 
um, you know, taboo to be outwardly and openly gay, but he is supported in his family. But that's not always the case. And, you know, with these um, festive celebrations, and not just Christmas, but whatever it is for whatever faith people follow, of course, when people do get together, sometimes we're asking people to to keep themselves in a box, aren't we? To, to make themselves smaller. Um, and I used to see this a lot with um, when I was working with um, people who were kind of second generation, been raised probably by Bangladeshi parents and very different people to their friends than they were able to show to their wider family and sometimes even their immediate family. And it was feeling like they were not living their authentic truths because of this fear of the council culture, you know, being told you're not a good enough daughter, you're not a good enough person, you're not good enough in your religion, you're bringing shame on yourself or even us. It's a big deal, isn't it? It is. And even if you think some of, I've got some um, transgendered clients that have to dress not in the way they want to or be addressed in the way they want to at Christmas because of the older generations that might be at the table. And they've almost got to put a huge part of themselves in that box and turn up and be somebody they don't feel congruent with. And that's such a sad position where they just don't feel that they can be good in themselves, as themselves. And I think that cancel culture just can really impact if we think about suicidal rates, if we think about mental health rates at the minute. The more we impact on that cancel culture where people just don't feel safe to say something, I think what we do is we constantly put a part of them in a box. And where does all the emotion go when it's not been allowed to speak? What happens when we suppress people from being their true, authentic, genuine selves? When we say, don't put your armor on, stay bold, what do we do to people when they're then faced with a high level of criticism and they're not wearing their armor because they're being true, authentic selves? It's going to hurt and penetrate into the core of them a lot bigger and a lot faster and a lot deeper so Mm. I think it's something we as psychologists we need to be thinking about in terms of cancel culture in terms of you know what's okay to be discussed or not discussed it's about what's true to the person and it's not always Mm. like it has to be said in a particular way that alienates other people but I think it has to be said in a way that is a truth that can be then explored curiously by other people yeah and I get I know you weren't asking that question it was semi-rhetorical but I guess what I see when people have had to keep themselves in a box is there might be more anxiety because actually what I often see is that inverse relationship of when anger is not able to kind of be felt um, and anger anger doesn't always look like smashing stuff up does it sometimes anger just looks like asserting yourself um, you get more self-harm you get more anxiety and you get um, a dipping in self-worth and if that goes on for a long period of time it reduces your drive in every aspect of your life and you know before too long it feels like you haven't got people in your tribe that know you as you and it feels very hard to find a way forwards and it also exacerbates the sense of shame we feel about ourselves when we do comparisons with other people and we know shame in itself can be toxic to the way the brain processes information, the way we relate to other people, even the way we interact within what should be our tribe. Because, you know, shame is meant to be one of the protective emotions that keeps us kind of regulated within the social norm. You know, sometimes it just gets way too big. And also, if you're constantly invalidated, 
there's going to be a huge depth of sadness that nobody's seeing in. There's no connection. You know, and sometimes that depth of sadness is totally misunderstood because what people see is its best buddy, anger, coming along to say, this isn't fair, hear me. And the more anger gets involved, the less people get heard. And it, then it becomes like a vicious circle that we just keep going round and round. So it's about saying, how do we hear people without immediately jumping in on an emotional response? How do we understand what's going on for them? And how do we really hear the nuance of what they're saying behind the, 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 the mask of anger or assertiveness? How do we get in and say, we see you for who you are and we are connecting? So I think whether, you know, you're just an aspiring psychologist or a psychologist or a mom or a sister or a brother or a friend, you know, this is like, this isn't just for us as professionals. This is for all people, because I think if we could kind of get that balance, and I know it might be utopic of me to kind of want that, but if we could get that, there'd be less, there'd be less discrimination in our everyday world yeah and you know sometimes I speak to clients who've got really good support systems around them who are able to have really I don't know like, like I think of as Dawson Dawson's Creek style existential conversations without that fear of cancel culture or sometimes that's what we have together in therapy actually and I guess my plea to the world is there are people out there who will get you or who will help you explore yourself and your hard limits, your soft limits, you know, the things that you don't like about yourself, the things that maybe you've always felt proud about yourself, but but feel like they're not things that other people think are good things, you know, there are people, there can be change. It's that, you know, adaptive belief that people can change, that suffering can reduce, that, that distress can be neutralised and that people can be happy, people can thrive. I, I passionately believe that and I've got kind of a, quite a lot of systemic leanings and it can be really hard to do that in systems that are so stuck or so archaic or so old. Um, one of the reasons I sort of stepped away from the NHS, it was all too slow, it was all too slow and a bit too archaic. But I know there are probably really forward-thinking NHS trusts and teams as well. Well, in a way, that was one of the reasons why I stepped away from the NHS was this massive idea of cancel culture and not being able to kind of point out some of the negatives that were going on and how we could enhance patient care, patient satisfaction, therapeutic goals, you know. And when I tried to challenge the status quo, I was met with huge resistance of pen pushers and adminers that were kind of like, no 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 and and i was saying but we're not delivering if we if we strip some some laborious bureaucratic processes out of clinical work we do more clinical work and therefore we see more people and we do better therapy or better nursing or better occupational therapy or whatever the profession was if we strip away a huge facet that's not actually clinical in process we'd get better work done. And if also we strip out the millions of layers of management, that one is the pressure, we'd also got more done. So, you know, especially having managers that weren't psychologists felt like your role should be because of your pay banding, wasn't because of your intellect or your clinical skill, like they would do a medical doctor. All of a sudden we were pigeoned as very different to medical doctors in the fact that, we weren't seen as good enough as them. 
we weren't seen as bringing the big offerings of a medical doctor, but yet we could transform somebody's life just as well, if not better, than a medical doctor because we see the whole person. Now, we can't treat a broken leg, but we can treat the trauma that goes with the broken leg that might stop the leg from healing under the orthopedic consultant. You know, so there's stuff we can do and we should know our place. And I think sometimes cancel culture comes in when people feel threatened that you might know a little bit more, you might be trying to change a system, that the equilibrium is set as broke. And you just may want to say, do you know what, let's change that equilibrium to something that might be working. And the pushback on it, both in the NHS and sometimes in the private sector, not as much in the private sector, because they have to fix it, because the private sector are a profit-led organisation, and the NHS don't seem to have that same ethos yet with the more foundation trust there are, they're becoming their own mini businesses. So again, does the business drive the clinical work or does the clinical work drive the business? But again, we were not allowed those discussions. Yeah, I think this is probably particularly resonant for the people listening to this podcast that might well be aspiring psychologists. So I know we do have qualified, we do have people who are not yet even doing their psychology degree or might be thinking about doing a conversion master's you know we've got such a wide range but what we are likely to have is people that are highly driven that are highly motivated that are probably reading that are listening to these podcast episodes getting these current themes and so they are energized and um, certainly when I was an aspiring psychologist I had all this abundant energy and drive for change and this is why my supervisor is saying god we love having assistants we love having trainees because you've got all this energy you've got all these ideas but it can lead to burnout if you're not able to actually put that in place so I guess this is my little shout out to our audience who are thinking yes this describes me but I'm not able to make those changes and it, it you do risk burning out you risk just not voicing your ideas because you think well what's the point what's the no difference will happen and that's the thing i think when people are looking at why psychologists leave in the nhs nobody really wants to hear the answer you want it to you know and even in private practice if you think about cancel culture in private practice is huge especially where i am we go to meetings as private psychologists it might be a safeguarding meeting it might be a meeting in the school and we are treated with suspicion and scepticism because we're not wearing an NHS lanyard. We are treated as if we are not as good as our NHS counterparts. Yet we know the, le- like the level of CPD I do is phenomenal. I've got three supervisors. I have no supervision in the NHS. I had to pay for it privately. Um, you know, I have all this stuff. But when we go to these meetings, our opinion, our clinical opinion is cancelled because we don't wear an NHS lanyard. And again, that's something that's rippling through the private sector that I'm hoping the ACP pick up on and try and get some marketing out there to actually say, actually, these clinical psychologists are bringing skills and and we're working in an ethically sustainable manner to ensure our CPD knowledge is is, um, there. Because if we consider my, I'm trauma specialist, All I do is trauma every day long. I'm an EMDR consultant. I'm really passionate about trauma, you know, um, yet I went in to a meeting in an inpatient facility with a consultant clinical psychologist who hadn't done any training on the ICD-11's complex trauma diagnosis. Now, bearing in mind, I went in 2018 to the BPS, 
in the January for that training of what was coming, how it was going to inform practice. I go to this meeting in 2022 and they still are talking about the ICD-10 and trying to label the client that was clearly complex trauma from adult, no childhood, as potentially personality disordered because the person was challenging in the interpersonal dynamic. When I laid out the formulation, I was just closed down as private. So again, even when we bring the skills and knowledge that we get from the BPS or the ACP and the skills and training we've done from CPD, currently in the UK, there is a real big divide between private work and, and NHS. But again, it probably doesn't help that our titles aren't um, protected. Anybody can call themselves a psychologist. So, And I think that also comes in because how do you guard against that in this idea of council culture? You know, somebody's a trained counsellor, celebrate you're a trained counsellor. Don't call yourself something you're not. You know, if you're a trained psychotherapist, call yourself a trained psychotherapist. You know, go with what your training and your competencies say we're keen to do. But I think that also has an impact, especially if you're an aspiring psychologist. You know, how many, we've seen some people who've done a degree, get BPS status, and then go and call themselves a psychologist as an undergraduate level, and actually engage in some quite dangerous work. So there should also be a shout out, please. It's about public protection. So we're all shouting out, not because we don't want to give you an opportunity and say, don't do the work. We're saying, do it in an appropriately supervised manner. So I know it's a bit of an extra rant, but it does tie into that idea of cancel culture where, you know, it's almost like we shouldn't even be saying that because do we fear upsetting somebody? I, th- I think it's all related though, isn't it? So sometimes I don't say stuff as a qualified psychologist that people are saying very, very loud as unqualified psychologists and getting great traction. And it's like, I just don't know if it's safe for you to be saying that stuff or making those claims. But I And I wouldn't say them, even though I'm a qualified psychologist. And maybe it is that professional regulatory body. So when someone is, for example, using one of the protected is it nine different titles, including practitioner psychologist, but using derivatives of that, you know, forensic psychologist, um, health psychologist, et cetera, et cetera. One of those titles, the protected titles, which are by the HCPC. We perhaps fear the cancel culture because we have that professional regulatory body, whereas people that are not professionally qualified and regulated don't have that. I remember once... Uh, a renowned counsellor calling herself a TV psychologist on this morning saying that OCD came about because of an infection and they just needed to take antibiotics. What? Yeah. And I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, I think that got a, a wealth of complaints into this morning, you know, because again, even, and I think the media need to play a role in this idea of, of putting the right professionals in the right place to get the right advice and kind of really opening the door to what is going to safeguard and protect the public within mental health. Because it is such a lucrative industry for some people. We're seeing businesses pop up all over the place, trying to recruit psychologists to do some work, to make some money off the back of somebody else, but wanting them to do half a job. And again, people are doing it because it's, it's driven by money or a fear that they won't get clients. And then they're penned into something that's actually quite dangerous for them. You know, these companies are editing their reports without letting them know. And lots of really spurious things going on in the market. So again, for us as professionals and being regulated, 
think we've also got to watch who we're signing up with, who are we working for, what are we doing, who who's protecting us. And I think there was a big debate about assistant psychologists not getting support in certain organisations or not being supervised in certain organisations. And I think organisations forget the role of an assistant psychologist is to be an assistant to a psychologist. You know, it's, it's in the definition of the title. So you can't employ an assistant psychologist without having a psychologist for them to assist. So these private organisations that want to put on their like registration for commission, and oh, we've got an assistant psychologist, we're doing all these psychometrics, we're doing X, Y, and Z, but they can't. That assistant psychologist has no safeguarding. They're not protected because they don't have a psychologist to which to, to monitor, mentor, and supervise them in the role. So... Uh, I think it's huge for what we're looking at, the industries, what we're looking at, not only for those professionals, but for organisations kind of need to kind of be educated in what an assistant psychologist is or why we've got the layers in our training system. And somebody coming out from a graduate degree, psychology is the best field in the world for me <laughs> to go study because I'm so passionate about it. So, but we want to be celebrating the roles a lot more and not putting people in jeopardy and under risk. Totally. Tangible. Yeah, I agree. No, it's 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 it's, it's all it's all relevant. Is it's all related? And I think even in you know NHS jobs now, it's not just it's not just private industry. You know, assistant psychologist posts or what's called senior assistant psychologist posts going out at band five. They're really looking for someone to be able to run a service often. And that's just not, as you say, it's just not the function of an assistant psychologist. It's not, it's not safe. It's not ethical. And I think that's important. But once upon a time, all assistant psychologists were paid at Vampire. We were valued for the worth coming off the back of a degree. It was really, really hard. And, you know, like a nursing degree is the same length of time as a psychology degree. They can go straight into paid work, you know, and build up their, their layers in the NHS. We have to only sit at assistant psychologists, you know, and I think you should be paid your worth for what knowledge you're bringing. You have to be paid and monitored by a supervisor because if you don't have that, what skills and experience are you actually teaching the assistant psychologist? But again, this is management in the NHS and it's, they're not, and we're almost cancelled out of our opinion because they think we're trying to safeguard a particular job when they're trying to deal with the dynamics of cost funding. So I understand where the dynamic comes from, but at the same point, you've got to do things clinically viable. Mm. I would say that a band five assistant feels like a hen's tooth. Like it feels like a rare thing to see and to find. Um, it is now. They tend to be four, yeah. Yeah, even in this area, when I was an assistant, it was band five. Um, both my posts were band five. Um, and then as years have gone on, it's band four. And then you have to do several assistant posts to get a band five. But like you say, they want them to be more autonomous, have less supervision. But there's a whole criteria of what keeps an assistant safe. Maybe that's another episode. Let's let's chat about yeah, that some more. I'll, I'll bring you back on in a few months because I think that sounds like a really really interesting conversation but um if someone is spending time perhaps even over this christmas holiday feeling like they fear being genuine to themselves or what they see as true or right what what can they do 
I think for me to protect themselves, I guess. In clinic, one of the things I do with some of my young people that can't go be their true, authentic, genuine selves at Christmas, uh, they notice the upset about it. We kind of do like a resourcing strategy where we kind of get them to know what their values are in that. What are your values in who you are? What are your values that you're bringing? What element can you bring to that Christmas Day meal? How long are you going to spend there? What other things are you going to do that day that say that you can tap into those values? Um, that where you might not be able to and it's not fair that you're not able to but what we don't want to do is create too much conflict with other people so it is very challenging in a way if this is still being recorded as it is that frozen expression that you see with Dr Marianne Trent if we could have done that and role played that that's a lot of the faces that people get when they sit around the table and they can't be their authentic self that they freeze out, they zone out they can't connect they don't know what to do and sometimes that's when they're faced with that. It's really, really difficult because if you were sat around the Christmas table and somebody Sorry, did Deborah, that, it would be really hard. We had a problem with I don't. I wasn't there. My internet. I know, I know, I did, when you read it, when you hear it back, I did a lovely little thing about your frozen face. Is sometimes what we get when people freeze you out around the table when you can't be your authentic self. And could you imagine how that would feel if you were talking in that dialogue with somebody that's not actually there? So I did a little thing just in case, just because I, I could see the timer going and I thought, I'm going to do something. I'm delighted you were still there because I thought that the whole platform had gone down and I thought it had lost all our recording so far. And I was like, but it's been really good. So I'm, I'm back, everybody. There. So I'm back. <laughs> I, I did pause, but then I thought, oh, I, can, I could use this to what I was saying about how people deal with that idea of going and not being able to be your true authentic self, because really what you're looking at is that idea that somebody's not fully with you, you know, and actually just yeah. being a part of yourself in that session, in that, in that, around that Christmas dinner table or around a festive meal where you know people can't hear you in the way you need them to. Oh. So if you're listening she's, to that, she's back, not a beginner at this, is she, folks? She's, I just, I just she, was she's winging pro. it. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Was I doing something really unattractive in my no, in my really in my mid pause game? No, you just looked slightly sad. So I thought I it just captured you. And I thought that's perfect. I said, if, and I actually said, if we'd set that up, that you could have done that. Then that's what people are faced oh, with. Like, okay. Oh, Sometimes, absolutely you know, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I hope that you are going to be surrounded this Christmas and this new year with people that make you feel really good, Deborah. Oh, I am. And I've got my my grandson who's coming here, who is oh, just her one. Um, and my daughter is And it's just our little family for Christmas. Um, because then anybody can say anything and be anything. Um, and then I'm off to Scotland for New Year. It's my spiritual home. Um, I'm going to the north of Scotland to be with friends um, who make me really, really happy. And then I get to celebrate with my own family for my nephew's 21st straight after the new year. And then it's back into a busy clinic. Oh, well, it sounds marvellous. And thank you so much for sharing your your wonderful view on all of this um, compassionate and balanced and just a really safe space as ever wishing you and your family and all of our listeners of course a really peaceful December into January whatever that looks like for them whether that looks like Christmas or whether it just looks like a bit of time off from the hustle to to kind of decompress and you know be the, hopefully be the best you can be I think it just should be a time forget that it's Christmas we have multi-faiths 
in our profession. It should just be a time where we connect with loved ones where possible. And where not possible, we connect with other people that are like family that may not be blood, that allow us to feel like we're connected. Because being alone at any time of the year, except in the depth of the winter, is much, much harder. So I think it's just about being connected and looking after yourself. Thank you so much. What lovely, lovely advice to end on. Thank you for your time. And yeah, we'll get you back on to just to really kind of take a look at what, I guess, what an optimum gold standard assistant psychologist role should and could look like. So you and I can both perhaps have a little bit of a, a play in the background. And perhaps this is a, an example for people to even anonymously share stuff about stuff that doesn't feel that safe. Or, you know, the other way around, if you've got stuff that you feel is really going well for you as an assistant, do send that in to me. Um, and Deborah and I can take a look at that and kind of weave that into the episode as well. So wishing you a wonderful um, Christmas and New Year. Um, and thank Thank you very much for your time Deborah. You're welcome. Welcome back along. Gosh, how absolutely wonderful to speak about all of these things with Deborah. Um I'm recording this straight after I saw her. Um and so I'm hoping that the slight internet glitch I had meant that all of the content was um yeah was recorded and and is going to work. Um, but we're going to leave that little bit of glitch in for you so that you can see that you know we're all right with not being perfectionistic. Um if you are listening to this on Christmas Day, then wishing you a wonderful Christmas Day and Christmas period. But of course, you might be listening to it on Christmas Day and not celebrate Christmas. And that is OK, too. But wherever you are in the world, I hope that you are feeling safe. I hope that you are warm um, and I hope that you are being kind to yourself um, thank you so much for being part of my world. If you'd like to come and follow me on socials, please do. I'm Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere. Um, if you are watching on YouTube, please do like and subscribe and share this content with people that you think might find it helpful. Come along to the Aspiring Psychologist Community Group on Facebook. Um, yeah, thank you for being such an important part of my world, giving me a reason to record podcast episodes all year long. Um, I look forward to bringing you more brilliant, fresh content. Um, please do feel free to pitch your podcast episodes to me. Um, thank you for being such loyal listeners and watchers. And I will yeah, see you very soon. The next episode will be along 6am on Monday. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, 
I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book, as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.